Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk um, with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. And we are delighted to have a very, very special guest with us today. James, um, who has found their way onto the podcast? And I can't quite believe we've managed this. This is wonderful. Uh, we have Tom Lacey, who is a veteran of the 99th Infantry Division, who uh, and the 99th managed to get over to um, Europe. Uh, they landed, I believe, in kind of early November 1944, were immediately transferred to the front line. And before they'd, they'd literally dug their first foxhole, the Battle of the Bulge had begun. And, and uh, Tom was involved in that. And then right through to the end of the war. And um, Tom, it's, 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 it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you. Nice being here. <laughs> and and, and I, I always think it's interesting, you know, we think of uh, of the United States as being such a a, a, a modern place with, with, you know, all the mod cons of the world and all the rest of it, and it kind of seems like it's always been the case. But, but growing up in the 1920s and 1930s, I mean, you know, some tough times in the in America. I mean, wh- where were you brought up? Uh, I uh, I was born in Huntington, Indiana. Then we moved to Indianapolis, and I was there until the third grade. And then my father was got a new job in Chicago. We uh, at the very first part of third grade, we moved to Wheaton, Illinois, at the suburb on the west side of Chicago, about 30 miles to the west. But that's uh, where I had most of my upbringing. I'm sorry, did you have uh, brothers and sisters and, and so on? Yes, I had uh, two brothers and three sisters. So we were a family of six children. Wow. And, and and what was it like growing up at that time in 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 America? And I mean, were were you was it a good childhood? I mean, were you quite happy? I mean, or, or were, were, I mean, were times tough? I mean, how did you yeah. how did you fare? Oh, it was uh, a very good childhood. You look at the world today, and it's so different. We never locked our doors. Never had to worry about theft. Anything. It was really uh, a much different world. You trusted everybody. Everybody tried to help it, others out. It was in a depression, a lot of it was. And there used to be people that would, hobos and so forth, for scrounging for food. They had ways of marking who was likely <laughs> to, to give you a handout and who wasn't and so forth. What did, what, what did but, your father do, Tom? Uh, he was an editor, a farm editor. Uh, he ended up as the uh, information director for the American Farm Bureau Federation right. Right. out of Chicago. So he had a big deal every year getting the convention together. <laughs> that was a trying time for him. It was six weeks getting all that stuff ready. He did a good job of it. They kept him on <laughs> till he retired. <laughs> And, and 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 what were you expecting to do? Because obviously the war intervenes, and 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 you, yeah. you have to enlist. Well, what, what were you going to do? Always, I was always interested in aviation from six years old, 
And uh, my dad used to take me out to the field, little grass strip in those days. It's a huge airport now, <laughs> concrete everywhere. <laughs> but uh, uh, we had a very astute inventor out there. Uh, forget his name right now, but uh, I think he designed the Ford Tri-Motor. Had always that airplane always impressed me. I guess most people had a big flying to do in those days. They usually had a biplane, you know, a lot of biplanes made. But the airplane that a lot of people had was a Stinson, getting around from one place to another. Relatively inexpensive, but a, a good airplane. How I mean, how old were you when when war broke out in December 1941 for you know Pearl Harbor? I was still in high school. I graduated in uh, 1943 and went into the service immediately. Did you volunteer? Almost, sort of. <laughs> I volunteered <laughs> for for induction. Right. What amounted to as part of the Army Specialized Training Program. Right. The idea was to university and you get an engineering degree. Spend about three years uh, working that out. But it didn't quite work that way. <laughs> we got one real nice semester down at Louisiana State University, which is really a lot of fun. We got a, in December, this colonel came over from Italy. He said, we're, we're going through first lieutenant or second lieutenants uh, awful fast, and we need a lot of them. So we're going to send you all back home for 10-day furlough and coming back and you're going to officer's training school, uh, OCS, they call it office. Anyhow, we came back and uh, we went, we left the uh, campus, but we ended up with the United, or I mean the 99th Infantry Division in, in Texas as buck privates. <laughs> and we spent the time there from, I guess it was February or January or February. I can't remember which when we started. And uh, it was a very good division. We got along well with the older guys there. They lost uh, quite a few people uh, were needed for another division. So they needed people. So they just divided us up among the various companies in the division. So which company did you join? Uh, company C, uh, 1st Battalion. A lot of good people in it. I'm sorry, which regiment was this? Because obviously you've got three regiments. And uh, three, uh, yes, uh, 393rd was ours. We had a 393rd, 394th, and 395th. We went in, and first place was uh, where we were about the time that the Battle of Bullets hit. It was a it was a very low key position. I didn't expect any kind of. <laughs> There was no objective anywhere around, you know, and it didn't figure into our plans at all. Didn't figure into anybody's plans, but Adolf Hitler. But we couldn't figure out what they're trying to do. But uh, but but, but making... Tom, by the time you got out there, I mean, can you remember the crossing and everything? I mean, had had you been abroad at all before, or was this the first time you'd ever been overseas? No, I was the first time I'd been overseas. I was just eighteen years old. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, you're <laughs> yeah. so young. And I mean, I mean, I know it's a lot. It's a little while ago now, but but 
I mean, was there a sense of excitement about going or, or nerves? Or, oh, I mean, yeah. You, when you, when yeah. you left American Shores, did you think this could be the last time I see this place? Uh, it never entered my mind. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Well, we all just want to get over there, you know, and see the world. And, uh, Did you? There was a there was a desire to be a part of it, was it? The majority of us wanted to get over there. Don't ask me why. <laughs> <laughs> but in those days, it was a lot easier to discern between good and evil. It wasn't hard to see the evil in Adolf Hitler, and, and uh, so, so we thought we were doing something worthwhile as indeed you were <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, absolutely and as a young off you know and as a young officer in company c of the 393rd i mean did, did you feel well trained i mean did you feel up to we speed were, you know competent we were very well trained looking back on it at first you know you didn't have a feeling of, of superior training or anything like that uh, we always thought we uh, were pretty well trained but the more you look back on it the more you realize how exceedingly well trained we were even down the bayonets they, we had a lot of bayonet training and that did an awful lot to you physically yeah uh, the more bayonet training you had, the stronger you were, and the more you could handle the situation. But uh, I never had to use a bayonet, and very few did, uh, if you needed <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, 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 and what about the relationship with your men? I mean, presumably by kind of training all together in the States and then going over together, you're yeah. not being you're not a replacement troop. You're not being slotted into something. You, you've, you've already built up a kind of a camaraderie, I suppose. Right. I was so happy to be a part of a division. We used to have, later on in the war, we lost a lot of people, so we had to have a lot of replacements. And the replacement never had the feeling that we had of, uh, you know, they're nice guys and so forth. They just were not trained as well. And when you're a part of an outfit, you grow. A lot of that growth is psychological as well as physical and you know what your buddy's gonna do the new guys you don't know what they're gonna do they didn't feel camaraderie the way we did so i was always happy that i was with a, an outfit like the 99th and it, it stuck together the way it did i mean we were cut up pretty badly at the bulge. Yes, I, I was going to ask Tom. Do you think that made a real difference at the bulge that you were a coherent unit? That you is that one of the reasons you were able to 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 get through and and to to endure that that attack that event because you were because you were a division like that. Yeah, I think they had a lot to do with it. We uh, had a general from the First World War, General Lauer. And he was a oh, pretty much old army way of doing things. And he was not the most popular guy in the world. But I tell you, he knew what he was doing. He really did. And uh, we held the north corner, uh, which prevented that attack from being successful. They had to make a, a bridge and get across at a place called Three Three Bridges, I think. We were able to hold them back. We actually prevented their tanks from advancing. They got a few of them through, but they didn't ever get uh, the 
the uh, mass attack like they were expecting to do. And they just had to do that in two days. They never even came close. The very first night after we retreated to the Ilsenborn Ridge, where I spent the next six weeks in the foxhole, uh, that very first night we were called up about seven o'clock at night. And it's dark at that time because it was winter time, quite a ways north. But uh, all of a sudden, about seven o'clock, oh, hell broke loose. And we saw the greatest Fourth of July celebration I ever saw. I mean, trails going back and forth. But that stopped them. And uh, then uh, they made two more attacks the next day. And then that was the end. They never did make a full-blown Because attack. where you were, you were, you were alongside the 394th, weren't you? And, and you absolutely, I mean, they, they just went bam straight into you and didn't really get anywhere at all. I mean, no. it's, 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 it's amazing. And you think that's your first action is incredible. Well, we'd had patrols, you know, did patrols every day or every night, usually at night. And uh, so we had a little bit of action kind of warming up, if you say. <laughs> but nobody ever expected that. Uh, even uh, Eisenhower, he couldn't see any objectives. So he had trouble believing that it was full-blown, finally very obvious. And so you, when act. you were in your, in your positions, uh, when you first moved into the line in, in November 44, and then, then obviously, mm -hmm. you know, in the first couple of weeks of December 1944, mm -hmm. did you in your line, you had no inkling at all that what, about what was to come? Oh, no. None. You didn't hear a thing? No, we had patrol. We knew where they were. And they knew where we were. <laughs> We'd go back and forth, you know. But it was very mild compared to artillery barrage which lasted about 25 minutes. Most thorough thing you've ever... They threw everything, every possible thing they could shoot. It just blew up and over the woods and created a big, big noise, but it was very ineffective. They have to hit buildings, you know, to to do anything. So, so that barrage didn't cause a huge number of casualties amongst your men then? Well, it knocked out every sound-powered phone we had in the whole damn regiment. The only thing left was my radio. So it made it pretty important for a while. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was the only uh, communication we had we had not counted on anything like that, so we didn't even have a spare battery. I think it was going back to the Belsenborn Ridge. The battery finally left, but at least it had done its job to get us back in, to the second division. They were shelling us because they didn't know they we were there. It was at night. We'd, we'd been lost for two days, cut off, but... Uh, we worked well with the second division. One thing I want to, I'd like to ask you though is, is I know you said you'd done a few, few patrols beforehand. Until you're really in the thick of the action, it doesn't matter how much training you've had. You you don't know how you're going to cope with what's flung at you. And yes, when that uh, barrage came down, how how did you cope with that? Did you did you kind of take that quite well? I mean, we did you manage to remain quite calm? I did, and I most of the guys did really. <laughs> we were uh, pretty well cut up, and all of the platoons and squads were coming back from up front, 
and we dug in around the command posts, company command posts. Let's say we maybe had a, a third of the people left at that time. Uh, it might have been a little bit less than that, but we were trading shots with the guys that thought they were going to take us over. And uh, about halfway through this battle, this one guy from Kentucky, he yells out, Sergeant Baker. Uh, Sergeant Baker was our first sergeant. And uh, he said, Sergeant Baker, I want to tell you, he says, it's more damn fun. He said, this is shooting squirrels back in Harlan County. <laughs> 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 and that, that just changed the whole picture right away. He got a battlefield so commission funny. for that, by the way. Did he? <laughs> he, he did. Incredible. That's absolutely amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Well, I think the, the, the 99th inflicted considerably more casualties on the enemy than the enemy did on you. Isn't that correct, I think? Well, maybe. <laughs> I guess in the long run, maybe we did. But they cut us up awful badly because we were way out there. Our company was the only company, I think, that was in German territory. We were just barely over the International Highway, just, you know, 100 yards maybe, but uh, we were, we'd been cut off completely. And uh, it's been amazing. We were supposed to form at 9 o'clock on uh, morning after after the big barrage, and we got back to the battalion where we were supposed to form, and suddenly a machine gun opera let go on the right, and I saw people surrendering, but I didn't think that was a good idea. So I went to the left, and fortunately there was a forest, about seven feet high trees, close together, perfect. We just went through that thing. Nobody could see us. And uh, it was a long forest. It must have been at least a uh, half mile, if not three quarters of a mile thick. So we took off to the west and then reformed and had guys from everywhere. Everybody had been cut up badly, our company particularly. <clears throat> well, all, Tom, all the accounts um, I've read of the battle – um, d dwell on the on how cold it was and the weather and, and oh uh, yeah um, I, it, it, it didn't start out that cold it started out about oh, 30 to maybe 38 degrees day and night and the biggest problem then was trench foot so it was not that cold it was chilly but not cold but then when we got back to the Elsenborn Ridge which was perfect field of fire up that was a smart thing to do, to form on that Elsenborn Ridge. to move ridge. back to the ridge. Yes. Mm -hmm. But, uh, oh, it was about the 1st of January, I think, very close to us, that it really started getting cold. We had to get rebooted and everything. I mean, it was, I think it was the coldest winter they'd had in about 100 years, something like that. And they always had bad weather during the winter, but nobody, even the people there, they said they hadn't seen it that cold. <laughs> it was really, really cold. 
Yeah. And what were you kitted out with? I mean, did you have enough winter winter kit? We had good supplies throughout the entire time, and uh, we were able to stay warm, but uh, it was not easy. <laughs> and uh, cold was really our biggest problem. There were times we really didn't care too much, you know. And the strange thing is, when you get real cold like that for a long period of time, you slow down, your speech slows down, your thinking. You have to, every time you, you talk to somebody, I would say, huh? The first thing was, all, huh? You have to repeat. Sometimes you have to repeat a third time. And you were in the same way, maybe not as bad. And so that was a miserable thing way of communicating uh, when you had to repeat things time and time again i mean yeah you know, to live in a live in a hole in the ground in winter with the snow around yeah. in minus yeah. degrees yeah. with yeah. the enemy shelling you i mean <laughs> i mean that's a, that's a baptism of fire and ice isn't it i mean that's absolutely extraordinary but you managed to keep going i mean personally you 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 sort of managed to oh, keep yeah. wits about you. I like to write and I'd spend the time writing letters. <laughs> oh people my folks of course and a girlfriend and lots of other people. That's the way I exercise my time. <laughs> because everyone wants to do you had to sit there and you had to be there. And they tried their darndest to knock us out but once you we got dug in on that bridge there was no way they could ever get you it's that that was the feeling was it that, that there's no way they're gonna get us out of here we're mm -hmm. we're we're not going anywhere was that was mm -hmm. that not just your feeling but the general feeling i think so not everybody said it but we knew we had a awfully good situation <laughs> and as long as we had supply that that was the big thing and, uh, and you had supplies of ammunition, food, coffee, every, cigarettes. We never ran out. During the time we were gone, you know, we we're out of communication for two days. In fact, our own general, he, in his book after the war, he, he said he didn't know where we were. The lost, literally the lost battalion. <laughs> You personally, were you in your own foxhole or were you sharing it with someone? Well, I was originally sharing it with our first sergeant, Sergeant Baker. He and I got to have a good relationship, but not, it didn't start out that way. <laughs> it, ended up, it ended up that way. Anyhow, uh, is a long story. We almost got separated from the division because we were asked to guard some of all things, sleeping bags, officer's sleeping bag by our first sergeant, and he forgot about us. <laughs> so his friend of mine and I, the other guy that was supposed to guard these things, we might as well use them. So we just got in and we heard these tanks going all night long because we were at a turn and uh, we hoped over 
American tanks rather than German, but we really didn't care too much. But uh, there's no way they could have been German because we didn't have any interruption. It was just everybody coming back and digging in on the Elsinborn Ridge. But uh, we woke up in the morning and the sun was shining. We took off the direction that everybody had been going. We saw a big old uh, 90 millimeter on a half track and they were having breakfast. So he said, you like like breakfast? We said, sure would. <laughs> so they invited us. And uh, as we were talking, they lost two gunners. He said, have you ever fired a big gun? I said, no. Would you like a job? <laughs> and I said, well, we, 99th Division, have you heard of them or seen them? No. I said, well, we better go try to find our outfit. And they said, if not, we'll come back. We were just about ready to turn around and come back. And I hear, Lacey, where are you been? It was Sergeant Baker. And I said, we were watching those those sleeping bags. I guess he said, oh, my gosh, yeah. Well, start digging, you know. And that's where we had the first foxhole. Well, it, uh, after I got through this shale, it was about six inches of shale he had to get through. It came to be fairly easy digging. But that first six or seven inches was tough as hell. Anyhow, it had its wonderful stock, so I mean, it was perfect. And uh, Sergeant Baker, we sat down for the night. Well, he had this habit of whistling through his teeth when he was asleep, and it went on all night long. It it drove me up a wall. I couldn't take it. And I said, Sergeant, I don't mean anything. But your whistling through your teeth just kills me. He said, could I go dig my own foxhole? <laughs> no. He took it pretty nice. But, uh, he said, if you want to go ahead. <laughs> so I did. It was fairly close, but it was far enough away. I didn't have to hear that whistling through the teeth. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so you were on that Elsenborn Ridge for some six weeks or so, and then finally, I think, well, what was it, about sort of beginning of February that, that you kind of went on the offensive again? Uh, we went on the offensive, I think, the uh, about the 31st of January. So we had uh, about six weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we we really didn't stop from then on. Went across Cologne Plain, at a pretty good rate. It's mostly riding tanks. <laughs> oh, really? We were jumping on the back of it, Shermans and things. Right. Shermans and the M18 with, had a 90 millimeter, very nice weapon. And we could see the two towers in, of the Cologne Church, a huge church, and these are huge towers. And, uh, we were just about ready. Well, in fact, we'd already started to dig in, and they said, "Get on the trucks." They just found a bridge, and uh, we spent the night above and about a mile from the uh, famous what's the name of that bridge, Remagen Remagen Bridge. But we were the first uh, to go over uh, the bridge, the first 
vision to get across. Yeah. How did how did it feel to be to be in Germany to be actually taking it taking it to to the Germans as it were? Was, did it feel like um, uh, you were an army? Victorious. How did the Germans react to you? That any that you encountered, the civilians rather than the soldiers, obviously. Well, we didn't have uh, much contact with civilians when we were in. Uh, there was usually fighting going on, so they were in their dugout. You know, each town had a a place where they could all get in safely, and it would be in their hole, and uh, we go through and. And they go back to their farming. But they had a farm, you know. <laughs> they just kept, I did have one real nice experience in the Cologne Plain. It was in the morning, and I hadn't had a hot cup of coffee for I don't know how long. We were interrupted for a while, like you used to do, hurry up and wait. And I'd see this smoke coming out of this chimney in a little farming community. About four families, I think it was. It's called Big Quadrangle. So I went in and knocked on the door. <laughs> now this is eight o'clock in the morning, and uh, this lady opens the door and she saw my carbine. She thought I was an officer because I had a carbine carrying the radio. They let you take a carbine rather than them one. That's half the weight. She said. Uh, would you like breakfast? <laughs> this family, four generations, were having breakfast. And uh, I thought, I'd just like to warm up my sea rations. We can give you breakfast, eggs and bacon. I had a whole breakfast, and they had my sea rations. I never had sea rations before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyhow, we had, she spoke. Perfect English, been educated, I think, yet someplace in Pennsylvania. She knew everything about what was going on in the United States. And she had a sister or a relation somewhere in Philadelphia, I think. So that was a wonderful experience. Fortunately, outfit was still there. When I got back, <laughs> <laughs> but did you have any? Did you have any particular close close shaves yourself? I had a lot of them. I, uh, I, I figured very, you might. Very overworked guardian angel, I'll tell you. No, I had a, a lot of them. And do you think, kind of? I mean, is that just down to good luck, or is that partly um, down to? Generating a kind of sixth sense and nose for for danger, and your training. I mean, how much do those those factors play a part? I think a little bit of both, really. Uh, there's a certain smartness, I guess, you get after a few encounters. It, it doesn't seem to take too long. I've seen. I saw one case where three guys came in, and three guys went out the same three. On the very same day, some of that was just lack of training, you know. They shouldn't have been that close together, for one thing. They all got wiped out with one shell. But <clears throat> an awful lot of it is, is good luck. Sooner or later, you're going to get hit, I think, you know. And fortunately, 
in my case, it was later. <laughs> uh, they were giving at uh, all the last, oh, uh, well, it was even during the Battle of the Bulge, I think, uh, cases where we would go to Brussels for three or four days or London or one thing and another, Paris even. My good buddy <laughs> carried the radio with me. He got a got one to Paris for a week, so it was to keep morale going, you know. And these were few and far between, of course, but they did come. And uh, after a while, I said, Sergeant Baker, I says, when am I going to get my uh, my trip? You know? Oh, he says, you're too bad, but we can't let you go. Anyhow, we had just taken this town. We were just, oh, about 10 miles from the Autobahn, I think, because they took the Autobahn the very next day. But uh, we'd taken over this little town, and we were sitting around about 12 of us drinking the wine. They all had a wine closet someplace. Oh, Baker, Sergeant Baker comes in. He says, Lacey, he says, get your gear and uh, report outside. You're going home. Yeah, I said, and something in Roosevelt is going to take me there, huh? And he said, get that there. I'll give this thing to somebody else. Had just instituted 30 days. Yeah, it was 30 days home. And I said, holy mackerel. He was serious. But how it happened. But it's what they had. They had two for the whole regiment. Uh, one from our company. And I was only one of 12 started who had landed in Lahar. 12 out of about 200. So they thought, let's put those 12 names in a hat and draw. And that's what happened. That's how I got <laughs> So I I got out of a boat, oh, about a month before the end of the war. How somewhere. amazing. So you got away with it. You, you were unscathed. Unscathed. I didn't get a bump. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I mean, this, statistically... The chances well, of that are, are, are zero, basically. Yeah, just about. Yeah, pretty close. And you know, when you when you look back upon that time, so that was you know November through to say was it April or something when you when you went out or end of March. The fifth of April or maybe the eighth of April or something. Like. So that's kind of you know best six months in 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 the front line, really. I guess uh, roughly. Yeah, I can't remember the number of days. And, and then you go back to back to America, and the war's over, and you get on with the rest of your life. Oh yeah, got out on the second of February, forty-five, and I started. Fortunately, I had some pull at Purdue University, but I started class. I think the sixth of March, <laughs> just a little over a, a couple of days over a month, and that was very unusual. Very, very. It happened because my dad had an awful good friend who was big at Purdue University. Well, we, we all need we all need friends in high places. <laughs> as you were then sort of getting back to kind of civilian life and and mm -hmm. the post war years, I mean, did you ever think back upon your your time with the ninety ninth and your oh, time in in the war? But I didn't. It, I didn't spend an un usual amount of time. Uh, I was doing what I wanted to do, studying aircraft, you know. I was in the Purdue Glider Club, 
got to fly and enjoyed life. <laughs> but I enjoyed my whole time at Purdue. Would you have missed it for the world being a soldier or would you rather, is it is it a part of your life that you're glad you experienced or something that if you'd not had to, that would have been just fine, uh, if, if you see what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I had no desire to be a military man. I wouldn't have traded that for anything. You know, we were just talking a minute ago and, and World War Two is completely unique. There was yeah. nothing like it and, mm. and nothing like it will ever happen again. And I hope so. <laughs> well, yes, of course, right. the way that, you're, yeah, yeah. that millions of men are fighting yeah. each other. I mean, that's just not going right. to happen. And, and it must be... Yeah. I mean, you know, here we are, but, you know, 70 odd years on from from mm -hmm. since the Battle of the Bulge and since the end of 75 mm -hmm. years since the end of the war. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, how, how do you look back on it now? I mean, do you do you still feel it was it, I mean, clearly it was something that, you know, what you did was it, it was a crusade. You know, it was something that was of vital importance. I mean, are you, are you proud of your part in it? We knew you had to do it. There was no other way that uh, we could have done that without a war. We were completely unprepared. I'll say one thing about Roosevelt. He saw it coming, and he did a lot. When I was, I was doing some special research one time for McDonald Logos where I worked, and I saw a bit of information that I couldn't believe but I checked it out six different times. <laughs> December 7th, 1941, who led the world in aircraft production? The United States of America. We were making more airplanes at that time, and we just started. I had just got to that point, I think. I was surprised at their production rate. They, they kept building those fighters. Until very late in the war. I mean, the mm. the story of how America gets to that point in December 1941 is a mm -hmm. is truly extraordinary. That that oh, 18 months from the middle of 1940, where Roosevelt mm -hmm. gets Congress to kind of agree the vast increase in funding for for war yeah. production, and then wins that election in November 1940. It's it's the most amazing mm. episode. And, oh, and you're right. You know, it's it's it, it happens so quickly. It's just a it really really did. When you can get a whole country united. Well, a, a whole series of countries united. I mean, you know, it's 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 all those allies, those Western allies all pulling together is, is what really does it. It's just amazing. And it's a shame we can't be like that now. <laughs> you know, but... <laughs> well, hats well, off to you for what you what you did yes. and what you went through and, and thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. It's been yes fascinating i um i shall never look at the elsbourne ridge the same now <laughs> yes yes thank you very much tom uh thank you for your time